This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Russian troops move ahead with their offensive against eastern Ukraine as the key port city of Mariupol in the south remains on the verge of falling. Defenders there say they may have only hours or days left. President Putin oversaw the test of a long-range missile dubbed Satan by the West. He says the weapon shows anyone threatening Russia should think twice. We'll go in depth on the state of the war in Ukraine. We'll also hear again from a woman living under Russian occupation in the city of Kherson and officials in New Mexico blasting firearm safety on the set of Rust and they issue the maximum fine possible on the movie producers. Home prices keep hitting record highs here in Southern California. What's it going to take for those to cool off? Big trouble for Netflix. The shares falling on Wall Street. They have had a drop in subscriptions. And uh, how do you make an Oreo cookie crumble perfectly? We'll go really in-depth on new science from MIT. We're actually going to challenge the uh, researcher at you MIT. You think you can do what they couldn't? I huh? We're, we're going to see if who's right, MIT... Or us. Yes. (laughs) We'll see. We start, though, with the war in Ukraine. Joining us is Samuel Romani, defense analyst at Oxford University in England, author of the book out later this year, Putin's War on Ukraine. Thank you for joining us. Um, This is a very critical phase, is it not, of the uh, war in Ukraine, as the Russians clearly are now concentrating on the eastern portion of the country? Well, it certainly is a larger scale offensive on the eastern part of the country. So far, there hasn't been much success for the Russians. The Russians did take over Kremina, which is a small uh, town of around 18,000 people in Luhansk. But up until the mayor was assassinated, Vladimir struck on March the 2nd, they had a pro-Russian mayor anyways. And Ukraine took over Marinka and Donetsk, which is another small area that's been taken over. So it's basically a stalemate right now. Do you see that kind of thing continuing? A lot of people have been thinking, well, you know, this is where Russia really makes its gains because they have the numbers. Ukraine is still outnumbered. Or is the Ukrainian resistance and the aid they're getting, is that enough to make the difference? So the Russians are gradually consolidating and adding more and more forces to the front. They added four more battalion tactical groups today. So they've gone from 78 to 82. Has not just infantry, has also got uh, appropriate uh, air defense and other logistical support for it. And and if they take over Mariupol, they'll be able to bring another dozen BDGs to the front, which will take their total troop concentration to well over 100,000. That being said, they have been poorly organized, they suffered from low morale, and they've been very ineffective as a coherent fighting force all across the country so far. So Ukraine's resistance has a chance to hold strong. It's got strength in numbers as well. And with the new uh, howitzers and uh, the 20 new planes that they've gotten due to NATO parts, I think they have a good chance of resisting the Russians. All right, let's talk a little bit about this long-range missile that we mentioned at the beginning of the program that is being dubbed Satan uh, by people in the West. Is this just saber-rattling by Mr. Putin, or is this something that we in the West really need to keep an eye on and be worried about? Well, I think it's largely saber-rattling from Vladimir Putin. This has been something that's been in the works for a long time. They, the, the Soviet delivery mechanisms, the SS-18s and the SS-19s that the Russians have been relying on to deliver nukes are very dilapidated. They're very out of date. This is part of uh, Putin's uh, military modernization that he began a decade ago after the 2008 Georgian War. And uh, it suffered from a lot of funding problems, a lot of organizational problems. And now it seems as if the Sarmat is actually working. You can deploy 10 or more warheads on each missile. It's a very powerful weapon, but I think the talk about using it right now is obviously just a means of ratcheting up tensions further. 
How concerned are you about something smaller scale, you know, a tactical nuke being used with the idea that if Putin gets backed into a corner, then he's going to lash out even more? So right now, the Russians are trying to put a damper on that. I mean, Sergey Lavrov's comments yesterday were disturbingly ambiguous from a Ukrainian point of view. When he says in this phase of the special operation, we're thinking about only using conventional weapons. So the Ukrainians are like, oh, no, is there a nuclear apocalypse coming? But the Russians have also been engaging in strategic stability talks, or at least aspiring to do so, which is their word for nuclear disarmament. And the Russians also notified the United States about this test, too. So, so far, their rhetoric in the nuclear sphere has been much more irresponsible and threatening than their actual actions. I think, though, nothing can be ruled out. If Vladimir Putin is feeling like uh, he loses dozens more BDGs and there isn't much movement in the Donbass and he thinks he can get away with it, he will try to escalate with chemical, biological, or even tactical nuclear weapons. You really think that that's a, a, a viable possibility for him to, to go to the extent of a tactical nuclear weapon? Well, it's a, it's a very high-risk step. It would only be done if he feels like, you know, he's got multiple hands tied behind his back. And uh, Ukraine's counteroffensive southeast of Kharkiv gained so much ground that the Ukrainians are actually standing to lose, the Russians are actually standing to lose territory that they had before the war. Uh, in the current scenario. In that scenario, anything can happen, but I still think it's very unlikely because a nuclear escalation could produce such unpredictable consequences that even Putin may not dare to take that risk. A chemical escalation is so much more likely, regardless of what Zelensky warns or what Bill Burns says. Samuel Romani, defense analyst at Oxford University of England, author of the book out uh, later this year, Putin's War on Ukraine. We continue our coverage of life for everyday people in Ukraine. Olga has been living under Russian occupation in the southern city of Kherson since the first week of the war. She uh, joins us again. Olga, thank you for taking the time again to uh, be with us, and we are both uh, glad that that, uh, you're still okay. Give us a quick update, if you can, on what life has been like for you since the last time we talked. Well, hello. Life is becoming uh, harder and harder here because uh, we are trapped uh, uh, in occupation and uh, uh, the situation is worsening uh, because <clears throat> Russia is, uh, they uh, really want to uh, to organize uh, the fake referendum during uh, uh, even papers for this. Uh, uh, that's why we are uh, in uncertainty what is going on uh, and what will be there soon. Right now, we are not bombed. Uh, we are at least lucky that we are not bombed. There are no raids uh, here, but uh, uh, the threat is uh, really, uh, really, it exists here. As far as I can feel, uh, you see, uh, it's like uh, waiting, uh, being sentenced to death penalty uh, or uh, bombing or uh, separating from Ukraine. It's really, it's becoming very hard. You said they were trying to uh, organize this this fake referendum, and this is kind of along the lines of what you were saying last time to us, I think, that, that they brought in fake humanitarian aid to, 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 to shoot a movie and say that, hey, look, we're helping all these people, and now that they're going to organize this, this fake election, saying what, that, that you guys actually want to leave? Well, you know, uh, they still... Uh, uh, bring this humanitarian help from Russia. 
and uh, they uh, give this humanitarian help with uh, signing papers uh, and uh, checking uh, uh, our passports, uh, well, people's passports, who, who get it, this help. And uh, uh, as uh, we can understand that uh, they uh, they take all data uh, of people because they understand that people will not vote for uh, uh, for Russians joining Russia and uh, referring uh, for fake republic. That's why they will organize it. With the, it will be again the performance. And I'm sure that all papers are already ready uh, to uh, announce that uh, Kherson uh, is, uh, wants to uh, separate. And lots of people, uh, thousands of people have already left uh, the town and uh, activists were threatened or uh, captured and uh, we cannot uh, meet, uh, we cannot gather uh, at uh, protest meetings because we were shot uh, at the meetings and uh, uh, activists were either kidnapped or had to leave the town also. And and yet, Olga, you remain. Uh, you are so far steadfast in staying in Kherson. Why? Well, you know, uh, uh, it's very, it's uh, the hardest decision in our life just to uh, to run away from uh, here, to escape in in nowhere. It's uh, uh, rather. Uh, Difficult first uh, to cross uh, all checkpoints with uh, uh, to pass all checkpoints which they have Kherson uh, to uh, Ukraine and, uh, to Nikolaev region. It's uh, uh, and uh, our our troops are trying to come from Nikolaev uh, to liberate Kherson, but. Uh, 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 they are moving very slowly, and uh, there could be uh, a different bombing on the way. And uh, Russians, uh, they stopped uh, people. And today, uh, my friends wanted to leave, uh, for example, and they could not because they were turned back, uh, and uh, they were not allowed to uh, to leave uh, the region. And it's uh, really to go nowhere, as to nowhere, where to live, uh, uh, no money, uh, because the uh, cash uh, is uh, finishing here in Kherson. We cannot get, uh, uh, well, it's really, uh, it's the hardest decision. And uh, we have uh, a baby and how she will spend the way uh, and uh, it, we, it can take the whole day just just to cross the border of Kherson region. What do you think happens over the next days or, or, or weeks with, with this major, you know, this, this battle we expect for the East? You know, uh, on Sunday there will be Easter, and they say, of course, that they're, they're in, uh, our, in, in Ukraine. And uh, they say that they can uh, organize provocations here in churches and even to go to church is very hard. Uh, they will uh, block, uh, they will close the region as it was in our uh, different uh, sources, that they will close the region. They will not allow uh, any, uh, anybody to leave uh, the uh, uh, city from the first till uh, 10th of May. And uh, during this time, they want to... Uh, to to organize the referendum. Olga, uh, Olga, do you think that you've perhaps turned out to be braver, more courageous than you may have thought you would have been? <laughs> 
you know, I don't know where, uh, whether it is brave to stay here or it's brave to leave Kherson. Uh, uh, I'm now thinking about it, whether to stay here right now, wait uh, uh, for our troops to come to liberate us or to uh, run away from uh, uh, occupation. And uh, it's rather dangerous because we can uh, uh, nowhere in Ukraine is uh, safe. Uh, and uh, uh, it's uh, very dangerous everywhere. And uh, it's really hard, to, uh, uh, not only physically and uh, mentally. And, uh, of course, it's... Uh, <sighs> It's very expensive also. We, we cannot afford it right now. You were mentioning... Maybe we will have to run away. I don't know. Maybe just uh, with, the, the, uh, with, with a baby and uh, run just away from bombing. Everything, anything can be. I, I say that you're just uh, waiting and don't know what to, what to wait. Uncertainty is the most awful thing which we are feeling here, all my friends, my family, and we, each day, every hour, we are thinking of, we are packing our suitcases, then again, we, uh, we uh, stop uh, because we uh, cannot dare just uh, uh, leave the town. But uh, so many people were uh, just, uh, some people were uh, captured, some people were uh, Kidnapped, uh, you know, uh, it's uh, becoming harder here. But we we want uh, our we are waiting for our to come and liberate, and we are, we really I really believe in it. Olga, there in uh, Kursan. Olga, thank you again for for speaking to us. We do hope you you can stay safe, and we want to stay in touch. Reports today by state OSHA officials in New Mexico say producers on the set of the Alec Baldwin movie Rust ignored gun safety rules despite uh, frequent reminders. Agency fined the production company the maximum allowed by the state law, more than $130,000. The set, of course, where the accidental shooting death of the cinematographer Helena Hutchins was last October. And with us now is Variety Executive Editor. Stephen Gatos. Stephen, uh, of course, Alec Baldwin uh, was one of the uh, producers or executive producers of that film. What, if anything, does this mean for him? Do you know? You know, it's a it's a question for an attorney at this point. Um, and in thinking about this and reading the variety coverage and the BBC and everyone else, as well as yours, um, it's really clear that uh, this was not a good day for anyone involved in the movie um, in, in a production capacity. It's a damning report. It's devastating, uh, to just uh, use one word. Uh, what does it mean legally, I think, is the big question. The civil lawsuits are out there. Uh, this can't be a good day for anyone who's facing a civil suit because uh, the government has come out and issued statements saying, this is willful, serious, you know, I don't know if the word negligence is used, but the word negligence seems to hover over every sentence. Right. And it's not just that, hey, there are rules and, and you guys didn't follow them, but they actually take the next step and they say the the team, the management, whoever was supposed to be running the show there, they knew that they weren't following the rules, that they were in violation, and they didn't do anything yeah. about it. Yes. And, um, you know, there's, there's a couple of phrases in the uh, wording. 
that jump out at me. I'm not an attorney, but I, I feel like I have common sense about these things. When you see plain indifference and you see uh, willful, um, you know, mistakes being made willfully, um, that's a serious and willful failures. Uh, that to me sure sounds like the word negligence, even if uh, maybe OSHA doesn't use that legal term. So how much soul searching do you think there is in Hollywood now for other productions because of this and perhaps in light of this report? Listen, I believe the soul searching has always been there and is always there. And the people who make movies, the reason that this case has gotten so much attention is this is unusual. This doesn't happen every day. Um, sets are conducted and sets can be very dangerous places. I have in my life, um, in addition to being in variety, I've also produced movies and I've produced small independent films on location. And I've seen things that made my uh, hair stand on end. Uh, it's scary. It's dangerous. I think everybody um, takes that seriously. So I don't think it's an industry that runs around taking chances and, and, and blithely disregards the rules. Quite the opposite. So, But I do think that um, there's reflection on gun handling by itself and the usage of guns and whether the time has not passed between the digital uh, options that people have to do things in post-production and not use guns. I think there has been a very serious uh, uh, analysis of gunplay in movies and whether or not the technology hasn't moved on so that we don't need to to even have the minimal risk that's been there. Yeah, is that discussion happening right now still? Because I remember it right afterwards in the in a couple of oh, weeks, yes. and a couple stars oh, said, yes. "Hey, we're 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 quitting the guns right now. It's all going to be CGI muzzle flashes, and that's yeah, it." But since, since then, we haven't heard as much. You won't hear it as much, but you you got to know it's got to be going on. There's a lot that uh, doesn't make the news because it's not flashy and it's not clickbait. But there's you know the like I said, the people who do these jobs, the physical production people, uh, the safety people, um, the, by the way, the insurance people, and the lawyers. Um, this is not an industry that takes this stuff lightly, but things do change. Technology changes. The mores and the standards of certain behaviors change, as we've seen. So, so I think, I guess this is a long-winded answer to your question. Has this case changed things? Yes, I think it has. Uh, but I don't think it changed things in the sense that it was a crazy, reckless world and suddenly people woke up and said, we can't be careless. Uh, they were not careless before, but they're going to be more rigorous and maybe they're going to look at how um, guns are handled in movies in an even more uh, scrupulous way. Variety Executive Editor Stephen Gatos. Mortgage rates have been rising, but still home prices set new all-time records across Southern California last month. Richard Green, Director of the USC Lusk Center for Real Estate, he's with us now. Richard, thanks for coming by. Uh, wow, uh, home prices really high. Give us a, an idea of what we're we're talking about. Uh, earlier in the show, we were talking about I think eight hundred thousand something as a average or mean price. Yeah, I mean, undoubtedly very expensive and beyond the reach of many people in Southern California most. Um, but one thing you need to remember is these are March numbers, which are based on mortgage rates that were around in February, because when people buy a house, 
um, they usually take 45 days to close. And so if you're looking at a house that sold at the end of March, people got their mortgage around February 15th, earlier in March, earlier in February. And back then, mortgage rates were still in the mid threes. And so I, I don't think we've yet seen the impact. In fact, I know we have yet to see the impact of a 5% mortgage rate on the market. And I would be very surprised if that doesn't cool it off some 60 to 90 days from now. So cooling off coming, but is there also before that happens a rush to kind of get in the door? Because you're already so close to being priced out and then you see that the rates are going to rise. So then you try and jump on whatever you can right now. And then there's a little bump up even more before things start to cool down. Yeah. So I wish we had great data on that. We don't. But when I talk to real estate agents, they are seeing they're saying that there are fewer people showing up to open houses, um, that the number of bids per house, while there's still multiple bids, there are fewer than there were um, six weeks, eight weeks ago. And so um, I think there are a lot of people who at 5% just know they can't afford a house. And so they're not participating in the frenzy anymore. Now, the other thing that's going on, we still see a lot of cash buyers out there. Um, almost a third of the market is, or certainly well over a quarter of the market is paying cash. Yeah, I was going to, who I was going to, yes, I was going to ask about that. Uh, who are the people who can just pluck down? Is it, does it come in suitcases that, that or duffel bags? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I don't want to go there, but it, it, I, I think it's two. It's one is investors looking to buy single family houses as investments that then they will rent out. Um, now, as other interest rates go up, like they could put their money in treasuries instead. And again, two months ago, they were making one and a half percent. Now they're making three percent on that investment. So the alternative doesn't look as good. But if their view is there's going to be inflation and rent, they're still going to find that appealing. But the other thing is we have a generation of parents who are sitting on a lot of wealth, including in their houses, and they're helping out their kids uh, so they'll refinance the house that they own as the parent take cash out, particularly a few months ago when it was so cheap to do so. And then that cash is available for their kids to go buy a house and then they can compete in this crazy market. Uh, you know, you, you, you said you didn't want to go there when Mike was, was raising the, the potential of maybe there's some other stuff going on here with these in, investors buying homes. But I got to tell you, I mean, I, I a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was looking at a very new uh, large condo building uh, in the Hollywood area, which uh, I was told by a couple of people was now fully bought. But you don't see a single sign of life because no one actually lives in these units. They just bought them. And you do have to wonder What's that about? They're not all just investors, are they? Yeah, well, it is also hard assets are appealing in times of trouble. So it's why you see precious metals do well in times of turbulence. And the world is a pretty turbulent place at the moment. Uh, the U.S. is looked at as transparent. It's looked at as a place where you have great security in your ownership. Um, so long as you're not a Russian oligarch at the moment. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so it, I think there are people around the world who say, you know, even if we lose a little money, it's OK, because we know that we're going to preserve overwhelmingly what we put in if we buy a property in the United States. And one of the things that's very unusual about us as a country is anyone can come and buy property if they want for whatever reason. We can't even trace very often where the money comes from when they do so. So. What is a youngish middle class person to do when they still want to get out of an apartment and they want a house, but instead of, you know, 30 offers, there's still like 
eight of them. It's come down, but you're still yeah. fighting with all these people. Yeah, I, you know, it pains me to say this, but if you want to do that, you're, you're probably leaving California because um, that $800,000 house, even if you get an FHA loan with 3% down, that's still $24,000 that you have to come up with, plus closing costs, there's title insurance and so on. So it's going to be more like, but by the time you're done, 30000 and for the middle class in California, and we'll call that somebody making $70,000, $80,000 a year um, with the cost of rent that they have to pay, accumulating that down payment is very difficult. So for them, you know, that's why we're seeing people moving to places like Phoenix and Las Vegas and Salt Lake City and Boise. Although the, those places are starting to get expensive, still not remotely as expensive, though, as here in Southern California. And with the ability for many young people to work wherever they want, um, that's going to look appealing to them. And we're seeing the outflow as a result of this. But one quick uh, last question here. I, I remember asking somebody on this show a couple of years ago, what is the solution to this problem? Because it seems to be perennial. And the answer at the time was, we have to build more units and we will. And once we do, uh, we'll have more rental units, we'll have more houses, they'll be cheaper. Is that actually happening? Not yet, no. Um, we, we are building at a faster pace than we have since the great financial crisis, but we're still not building at a fast pace by historical standards. And in California, we are, again, we're doing a little better than we were doing a few years ago, but some of it, like when we look at building permits, some of it is ADUs that are permitted, but they were there before they were just illegal before, and now they're becoming legal. So it's even hard to know how much we're actually adding to the stock right now. We need to be building at three, four times the pace that we're building at the moment in order to put a dent into this problem. Richard Green, director of the USC Lusk Center for Real Estate. And uh, Richard, thank you. Tough day for Netflix. Streaming giant saw the shares plunge 35% after the company reported it lost subscribers in the most recent quarter. First fall in Netflix subscriptions in more than a decade. With us is Lucas Shaw, covers the entertainment industry and business for Bloomberg News. Uh, Lucas, thanks for being here. So is it that Netflix lost subscribers? Is it that they're talking about um, maybe advertising? Is it that, you know, it became the term kind of like to Google something? You just, I'm going to Netflix something and it's the catch all for everybody. And now we've finally seen, uh, you know, the Titan get a little shaky here. Okay, so tell me about what's going on with Netflix. Is it that we were subscribed that they lost, uh, surprised that they lost subscribers when they were supposed to gain, or is it that this is supposed to be the big streamer and it's getting shaky? What's happening? You know, a bit of both. Uh, Wall Street thought that Netflix was going to add about 2.5 million customers in the, the last quarter, which was the first three months of the year. They thought they would add another about, you know, another couple million in the current quarter. Uh, but instead of projecting that it would, you know, gain 5 million, Netflix lost in, in the last one and said it's going to lose even more in this one. That's a huge shock. This has been a company that's only known one direction and that's up. Uh, and then that, that sort of raises the question of what is the ceiling for this company? It's been valued like this tech company that's going to keep growing and dominate the market. And instead, it's starting to look like a business that is, is entering maturity in a different phase and isn't worth close to, to what people thought it was. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm kind of surprised that investors were surprised. I mean, there's so much, <laughs> well, I mean, there's so much more competition now, right, uh, for Netflix, that one would, I would think, especially if one is a, a somewhat sophisticated investor, would kind of figure out that it's not going to go up forever. Nothing does, does it? I mean, that's a logical point, but 
if you look at what's happened over the last couple of years, you know there were there was this entrance of of new players, and Netflix continued to grow. It didn't seem to, to slow its momentum. Certainly not in you know the, the first half of 2020 when the the pandemic was accelerating the growth of all these services. And then even when Netflix slowed down a little bit after that, it had a somewhat plausible argument. Well, you know we signed up so many people in the first half that maybe it's it's hurting us a little bit here. They continued to deliver these huge hits in Bridgerton and Squid Game, and so it, it just wasn't clear what the impact from competition was. I think you're right in suggesting that it was inevitable that competition would would cause Netflix to slow down. And I'm a little bit surprised it didn't have more of a game plan for what happens when when that came. You know, this is a rare case of a company that's usually been ahead of the curve, um, you know, being behind the eight ball a little bit. So what do they try to do? Is it uh, get more subscribers and get back on track for growth? Or is it uh, get more money from who you already have? Well, those are those are both the things that they have to do. You know, in terms of getting more subscribers, that's one of the reasons they are planning an, an advertising supported tier. They're hoping that maybe there's some people who now feel that Netflix is too expensive for them who might try it. If there's an advertising supported option, they're also talking a lot about you know, ways to curb password sharing, which is getting more money out of existing ones because it's not going to kick people off, but it might say, "Hey, you're clearly not the primary account holder here. Do you want to pay an extra three dollars or something?" And that's that's a project that they're testing right now in some big markets in Latin America where where password sharing is is a particularly grave problem. those are a couple of the solutions. It's they're they're very uncertain ones, and it's it's not clear exactly what whether they will work. You know, Netflix executives I've spoken with say that this is a you know a two year plan, if you will, to try to reaccelerate growth, uh, and the jury is out on whether it'll work. I was going to say, going to a ad supported free service isn't that like what we used to call television? <laughs> Well, it's also something that almost all of its competitors offer. You know, you look, Hulu has advertising, Disney Plus is going to have advertising, HBO Max now has advertising, you know, HBO famously issued advertising for for a long time. But but we do seem to be trending back towards something, you know, more like cable. I wouldn't be shocked also if, if at some point there's a discussion of trying to bundle different services because it's one thing to to quit Disney Plus or Netflix because they don't have a show that you want right now. But if you were given an option to say buy Netflix, Disney Plus, Hulu and HBO Max at a discounted price, you probably would do it. Is it still your first stop when you when you turn on the TV? Is it Netflix or you go to one of the others first? Because most people start Netflix and then if they can't find something there, then it's on to Hulu or Disney or whatever. Yeah. on, On a purely personal level, I probably go to other services more. I go. I'm. I'm. A, I watch HBO Max more than I watch Netflix. Netflix is probably second with Hulu and Amazon coming in somewhere after that. But I'm also more aware of, sort of what shows are out than the average consumer because of what I do. And so mine is usually more dependent on what is the show that I'm intentionally trying to watch. That's a smart way to do it rather than just scroll for three hours. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Lucas Shaw covers the entertainment industry and business for Bloomberg. One of the latest scientific experiments over at MIT has to do with Oreo cookies. The crucial question, can you twist them in half so you get an equal amount of filling on both halves? Well, that has been tested by MIT researcher Crystal Owens, who is kind enough to be with us now. Crystal, uh, thanks for, for being with us. Did I get that right? Is that the idea that, that you were setting out to see if when you, you try to twist the Oreo apart, if you can get both sides to have the, the, the perfect the, twist, the perfect amount of, of cream? Is that right? Absolutely. Yes. 
And, and because you expect, yeah, you expect if you twist an Oreo perfectly, you should get the cream to just divide perfectly in the middle, right? And what did you find? Oh, uh, that's not the case. There, there, so there is no perfect twist. <laughs> yeah, there's there's no trick. We we spent six months looking for any special mechanical trick to get the cream to be like perfect because like Oreos taste better if you have cream on both sides. Absolutely, right. you don't want Absolutely. it all loaded no, on one side no. and then just the the cookie dry on the other side. No, because you have a dry side and then you have the cream side. You don't want that. No, you want the perfect twist. Well, Crystal, we we challenge you. Well, uh, I think I. I'm on your side. No, 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 no. Let's I have never we, twisted perfect. Well, we're going to, we, we, we bought, you did regular Oreos, right? Not anything fancy. Not special. double stuff? Yeah, you did. Oh, regular... we tried, we tried Ooh. everything. Everything. But our results. The vanilla ones. Too. Okay, so well, I got... We tried 20 different kinds. <laughs> I, I think I There's bro... 20 different kinds of Oreos? <laughs> yeah. I think different I broke. Different boxes, different flavors, different stuff. Levels, what happened, right? Crystal? What happens if you break a cookie? Because I just broke one, <laughs> so that one doesn't work. <laughs> Let's try another one. All right. So, <laughs> so you, you, you I'm going to twist it, and I'm going to. I got one in one hand, and the other, and I'm twisting it. And I think I can. I think I'm almost there. What about you, Mike? Are you? Oh, I'm very like eighty twenty. I yeah. am. Uh, There's a whole chunk out of the middle well, of this one. You know, look, I'm kind of close. Mike, take a look at this. I'm kind of close. Well, I see brown. Well, you see brown, but there's this <laughs> cream on both sides. Uh, why can't Why can't I do this? Is I am I? Just is it like, our hands that huh? we can't? Is it our it, hands? Yeah. Is that what? Why, why can't we get the cream on both sides? Yeah. So it, there's no there's no sort of trick about like the way that you twist it. It's just the way that Oreos are manufactured. The cream itself is stronger than the cream attaches to the wafer. And since the wafer is so smooth, that means that the wafer just like or the cream just like detaches from the wafer rather than like splitting apart in the middle. And and you go ahead, Mike. I was just going to say the lengths that you went to figure this out were what you built a machine, right? The the Oreo meter, the Oreometer. Yeah. Yeah, so we started out using. So I it. <laughs> yeah, you can pronounce it how you want. We we call it the oreometer. Oreometer. Okay, and what does the oreometer do? That was something that you could try and get your twist perfectly, and even then, you couldn't do it. Yeah, because the oreometer, you can. Um, so it, it's a three D printed device that's powered by rubber bands and pennies, so that you can very precisely know how much stress you're applying to the cookie when you twist it, and you know that you're getting perfectly rotational motion, right? So you get the perfect twist. Um, by the way, I'm eating one now. Um, why can I ask, uh, Crystal? <laughs> did you want to do this? Uh, when I was a kid, I yeah. spent a lot of time eating Oreos. I think a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, and I thought the opening the Oreo is the best way to eat them because it just tastes better with cream on top of the wafers instead of like in between. You, um, most people do twist, right? I mean, who's who who chomps on them out there? No, of course you have to twist. You got to twist That's the whole thing. Yeah. So basically, you were it, trying to help society <laughs> <laughs> to find the answer of the perfect twist, so we'd all be happier. What, when, yeah. when you went into this, Crystal, did did you think though that you could? figure out a way to to you know twist it so that you would have equal amount of cream on both sides did you think going in you would succeed there would have been celebrations in the streets yeah oh yeah absolutely it, it's because because my background is studying um like the the viscosity of complex fluids and there are a lot of different fluids like hair gel and mayonnaise and like toothpaste that you can get very even splits if you just like mush the material right before you try to separate um something that's enclosing it well I'm so i thought like oreo should be the same maybe they've done this on purpose to get us to keep trying so then we just buy more oreos 
Well, I'm going to try again. So hold on. Wait, wait. While he does that. Oh, there's a. This was a miserable failure. <laughs> <laughs> wow. See, harder than it was. Yeah. Wow. There's okay. a line that I read that you you're quoted on saying, um, "We made this 3D device, the Oreometer, uh, or the Oreometer, so anyone can make it at home, and you can." Make other measurements because, quote, we didn't even begin to answer all the questions someone could ask about Oreos. So what are the other questions someone can ask about Oreos? It's, so some of the easy ones are ones that we weren't able to study about just temperature dependence. So like if your Oreos, if you have like an Oreo on a hot day versus a cold day, is that going to influence how the cream works? Because in our lab, we had everything like temperature controlled. We needed to have it perfectly um, like we needed to use fresh Oreos. We needed to only pick the Oreos out of the box that were like fairly symmetric and like not tilted one wafer to the other. So I think there's a lot out there of people testing like the edge cases, different temperatures. Uh, we also didn't study the torsion after you had dipped them in milk, hmm. which is a very interesting test. This is we, why, we studied, yeah, like, this is why you're at MIT. Yeah. This I, is why you do that. I don't have milk with me, but you take it and you, you it's like a dip. Today I learned 25 flavors. Because if you keep it in the milk, Mike, it, it kind of disintegrates. Well, I mean, like, not keep it in there, but just no, like a you, longer dip, like a dip. What, what do you then, consider a longer dip? I don't know, like a second or two. That's not long. a splash. Yeah, it's yeah, long. You, go, you don't yeah, want it soggy. You take it in the milk, you put it in, and you put it in your mouth, and you eat it. You want other flavors? Yeah. Churro. Yeah. Uh, mint thin birthday cake. Uh, peanut butter Oreo. Taking off my headphones because it's right in my ear. Red velvet Oreo. <laughs> <laughs> As I eat my Oreo. <laughs>